Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful. This is KCBS In-Depth. According to scientists with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, this past July was the hottest July that the Earth has experienced in 174 years. And if you took the chance to be outside, or worse still, if you couldn't avoid being outside during that month, you probably felt it. Overwhelming, stifling, and oppressive heat. Those spikes in temperature are becoming all too common lasting longer than before, happening in months when they didn't used to. And we definitely notice these changes as we crank up the air conditioning. But how often do any of us really think about heat and its long-lasting and sometimes devastating effect on the world? Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Mary Hughes. There's someone who has done a lot of the legwork in looking at the many ways our lives are affected by heat, and that's Jeff Goodell. He's a Bay Area native and best-selling author who has tackled the topic of climate change for years, and he continues to do so in his latest book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. Thank you so much for joining me on our in-depth program. Happy to be here. So... I, um, I I would just want to start off by saying that I that I have read the book. It's so much to wrap the brain around, and I and I f- sort of feel like I, I kind of was left swimming a little bit mentally by the end of it. But I feel like this trajectory of getting to this point of talking about heat can kind of be seen by previous works and and stuff that you have done before. But what what brought you to writing this book? Well, it was a very, actually a very clear moment, a very straightforward moment. Um, I was in uh, Phoenix, Arizona about uh, four years ago. It was 115 degrees. I was staying at a hotel downtown. I had some meetings there. I walked 15 blocks uh, 
downtown to um, one of those meetings on in the middle of the afternoon, and it was probably because of the way the heat, you know, um, is absorbed and radiated back in in urban areas at probably 135 or 140 where I was actually walking. And by the time I got to my meeting, uh, I was uh, dizzy, my heart was pounding, and I thought, wow, um, this heat is dangerous. If I had to walk another 10 or 15 blocks, I don't know what would happen to me. And that might sound like a banal and um, not so interesting moment, except that by that time I had been writing about climate change for more than a decade, and I, th I thought that I had thought a lot about heat, but I really hadn't thought about what it meant for me and for other people in a sort of daily way and in, in the sense of the immediate risks of these higher temperatures. And that was really the beginning of, of the book for me. I really wanted to explore what extreme heat means, not just on the sort of planetary scale, but on the real personal scale and understand better the risks and the dangers uh, and why so many people die during heat waves. So I, I grew up in North Carolina and I was, you know, very used to humidity during the summers. And then we'd have, you know, quite cold winters uh, for a state that's, you know, very much considered part of the South. And when I moved to the Bay Area, which was back in 2017, I kind of thought that the heat would be something, you know, perhaps slightly more tolerable since it's a, a, a drier heat. But each year progressively, it seems like it feels hotter than ever. And I don't know that I had ever thought that much about heat at all. And I think that's something that the book really gets at in such a definitive way. It's just like you don't recognize these incremental changes until all of a sudden you do. For sure. I mean, you know, uh, I grew up in the Bay Area, I, you know, born in Palo Alto, grew up in Sunnyvale, and I never thought about heat growing up. It was never an issue. I mean, obviously, the Bay Area is a very, um, certainly back then, was a very kind of temperate Mediterranean climate. But, um, you know, it wasn't until recently that, that and I moved to the East Coast and lived in New York City for a long time, and there were hot days and things, but it wasn't until you know, that day in Phoenix that I really began to think of heat as this sort of active force that plays, um, you know, a very powerful role in our daily lives and can be, frankly, really dangerous. Well, let's um, let's touch on the fact that it is connected to, to so many things. Um, in putting this book together, kind of lay out for us, if you can, some of the areas that you were surprised to see how much heat affects what's going on. One of the what I try to do in this book is talk about heat on two different levels. One is the sort of personal level in the sense of what it does to us, to our bodies, to what being out in extreme heat, uh, what the risks are, what the dangers are, how our bodies react to it. But I also try to talk about it on a, a kind of planetary scale. And, you know, one of the things that I think most people don't kind of quite grasp, even people who think about climate change and, and are uh, pretty well educated about it, is that heat is the like the primary driver of all these other climate impacts that we're used to hearing about. So, you know, the fires in Maui, the the um, the wildfires in, in paradise a couple of years ago, the sea level rise in Miami, 
you know, to the extent that some of these have been driven by these kinds of extreme events are driven by climate change, it's really heat that is the things that is the primary driver of all of this. And, you know, that's really important idea to grasp. Um, and in the book, you know, I looked at it beyond just that about these sort of macro climate changes, but also things like food production, food crop failures and things like that, you know, plants are just like humans. We have a sort of thermal range that we can tolerate. And when we get beyond that range, we get in trouble. It's the same thing with corn or um, cucumbers or whatever you want to name. I also looked at how it changes things like disease patterns, um, because a lot of the animals that carry diseases, um, especially mosquitoes, are exquisitely um, sensitive to temperature changes. So as it gets warmer, they start moving into new areas and they bring things like dengue fever and Zika. Uh, you know, just in the last few weeks, we've had the first cases of malaria in the United States in um, many decades. So it's 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 these sort of I also looked at these sort of secondary effects to see how, you know, these rising temperatures are are really rearranging life on our planet. Well, I, I have to I have to say that when I got to the chapter that uh, did deal with mosquitoes, that was that was almost like watching a horror movie before going to bed for me, um, because the ability for for viruses to spread and how heat affects that, um, I have to say that that was a little bit terrifying to read. Well, yeah, um, I mean it's terrifying to think about, but you know I think that you know my purpose with this book is to really help people understand the scale and scope of these changes that we're talking about that it's not just about when we talk about extreme heat and things we're not just talking about you know uh, taking precautions when we go out when our kids go out to play football games on a summer day or something like that it is really having these you know kind of profound impacts on on our world and i think it's really important to um, understand this stuff not because i'm the farthest thing from a doomer. I'm, in fact, a. I've been accused of being a kind of mindless optimist, <laughs> but I, I really think it's important to understand the scope and scale of these changes that we that we face, so that we can think more clearly about what the solutions are and how we can prepare for those changes to come. I, I noticed uh, quite a few times in the book that there was a lot of mention of you know things happening like um, since 1970, Earth's temperature you know, had spiked faster than any comparable 44 period. And it was also around that time uh, that India became more urbanized. And I just sort of started seeing 1970 or 1970s kind of everywhere. What what was going on then that seems to have had a lasting effect on our climate and where we are now? Well, I mean, a couple of things have gone on since then. First of all, that was, you know, more or less the beginning of what we now consider the environmental movement, which climate is, you know, in some way an offshoot of. It's very different than, in, you know, talking about climate crisis is very different than talking about environmentalism. But that was the beginning of, you know, the the rise in consciousness of, um, you know, the the impacts of how humans live on the planet and what what it what it means to our world. It's a famous. Um, uh, uh, Earthrise photograph taken from one of the Apollo missions, I forgot, mm -hmm. which, you know, it was very, has long been considered a, a kind of benchmark in our rethinking about the fragility of our planet and the 
consequences of how we live. So there's a broad, you know, changes started then with with that kind of development of the consciousness that has led to our understanding of where we are now. And, you know, you also, you know, you mentioned India specifically, and you could, we could talk about China too, uh, and also even the U.S., is the, you know, the acceleration of sort of modern industrial development driven by fossil fuels, you know, um, the rise of the automobile, the rise of air conditioning, you know, all of these kinds of things that have been, you know, in some ways blessings and in some ways curses um, for our moment that we're in really started accelerating in that kind of, uh, you know, 1970s to, to, to now era. It's, it was a really crucial time for global development in many ways. So one thing that I read in there was the, the urban heat island effect. What is that exactly? So the urban heat island effect is a phenomenon that's you know been measured for for years, and makes total sense as soon as you start to think about it. Which is that cities are much hotter places than the countryside around them. Sometimes, depending on the city and the climate, fifteen, even twenty, twenty, even as much as twenty-five degrees warmer than the surrounding region. And it's because it's very simple. It's because you know, cities are made of um, asphalt and concrete and steel and um, all of these materials um, absorb heat and then kind of radiate it back. I mean, the same way that, you know, you heat up a rock and wrap it in something to keep you warm or something like that. I mean, you know, these materials absorb heat. And it's well known that, like I described my walk in Phoenix, for example, on a 115 degree day, the, the temperature where I was walking, because I was out on the sidewalk on a, you know, busy paved, at the edge of a busy paved street with black asphalt, you know, it was probably 135 degrees where I was walking. And, you know, we've built cities out of these materials and in these ways that um, don't consider uh, how they function in these higher temperatures. You know, we, we don't until now, haven't built cities thinking about, oh, they're going to be, it's going to be 20 degrees hotter in that city. Maybe we can think about building it differently. Maybe we can think about using, you know, less black asphalt, um, whiter roofs to reflect away sunlight, more open areas, more, you know, parks and green areas that don't absorb and radiate heat that are kind of cooling spaces within cities. Um, but, but you know, we haven't done that until now we're starting, some cities are starting to think that way. But, but yeah, cities are, um, are, are ovens. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of things here in the Bay Area that I know that places are, are trying to do. And recently, uh, the EPA invested um, like 50 million or more to help protect the San Francisco Bay and the watersheds there and to get more climate change resilience in there. So I, I know that areas are doing what they can now. You know, you mentioned things that cities can do. What needs to happen to make that appealing to a city to do, though? One of the things that, you know, has to happen is for city officials and other, other politicians to understand that, you know, a uninhabitable or marginally inhabitable city is, you know, not in anyone's best interest um, politically, economically, or any other way. Um, 
you know, the, the big picture thing here that is really important to kind of grasp is that our cities, and I don't mean just the Bay Area or Phoenix, I mean, basically around the world, were built with this one idea of a particular climate in mind, right? The, the climate that, you know, the world experienced in the, you know, post-war years when a lot of the city building happened was imagined to be that's the climate that these cities were always going to have to sort of function in. And what's happening now is our climate is changing rapidly. We're seeing much more intense rainfalls as you in California, just in Southern California anyway, just experienced with this tropical storm that hit. We're seeing more intense droughts, more extremes of all kinds is the hallmark of the climate change era. And cities are simply not built to deal with that. We're it's they 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 are not engineered for these kinds of extremes so we see things like here in austin last week there was a front page story in the austin paper about how they had to um divert um a bunch of the uh train traffic that comes through um austin and the surrounding areas because the railroad tracks were melting or bending uh because of the extreme heat you know you see cities all around that are dealing with extreme flooding because of you know they were not built with flood systems and storm drainage systems that prepared for these levels of rainfall all along the california coast you know cities are dealing with massive erosion uh, uh due to rising sea levels which are causing you know higher tides and and that all that stuff is just going to um, continue to accelerate until we stop burning fossil fuels and so you know there's this sort of unspoken but very obviously true mega engineering project that has to go on and it is starting to happen for cities to reimagine themselves for a new climate and how that happens and how fast it happens you know is going to be one of the sort of great engineering tasks of our time I'll be interested to see what comes out of these these questions and this need to find these solutions because uh, you mentioned the the extreme weather situations that we have been experiencing and and seriously everyone in the country has some version of this story now. There was an aspect to the book where you talked about extreme event attribution. What does that refer to? Thank you for bringing that up. It's because it's really important and it doesn't get talked about enough. So one of the things that it, it's a chapter about a, um, a leading climate scientist in Europe who uh, is one of the leaders in this idea of attribution science. And attribution science means being able to say uh, within a you know degree of certainty that approaches factualness that a certain event was caused by climate change or by higher levels of CO two in the atmosphere, and you know. Because it, it goes to this question that everyone has. And I'm sitting here in Texas right now on a, you know, it's 102 today. People will say, oh, it's always been hot in Texas. Or Miami has always had hurricanes. Or, you know, you know, it's there's always been droughts in the Midwest. And so this is just natural cycles. And and it's obviously true that, that the climate has changed, you know, over time. But it's also obviously true that we are warming the climate faster than it has ever warmed before by loading CO2 into the atmosphere. And this attribution science is able to say 
that, for example, the Pacific Northwest heat wave um, that hit in 2021 in Oregon and Washington and British Columbia and killed over a thousand people had huge impacts on wildlife. Um, and, uh, you know, they are by running these climate models that kind of do these events with the CO2 in the atmosphere and then without it, it's, you know, the details are, are not really important, except to say that it's very accepted and, and, and very um, legit, not fringe science at all, um, are able to say that this heat wave, particularly the one in the Pacific Northwest, could not have happened without, you know, the additional CO2 that we've dumped into the atmosphere in the last few decades. It, it, it was a virtual impossibility. And this attribution science is really important because not every event is like that. So, for example, they looked at flooding and massive flooding in Pakistan early last year causes huge amount of damage. And they were said, and their attribution study there said basically, no, this was a within the range of natural events. This was not caused by higher CO2 levels. And just to wrap up, the reason that this is important is that it goes to the question of justice and responsibility. So you can, if you can say that this heat wave in the Pacific Northwest was caused by additional levels of CO2 in the atmosphere, you can begin to say in a court of law, you know, oil companies, gas companies who are who were the ones who contributed to putting this CO2 in the atmosphere and knowingly did it and spent billions of dollars of disinformation telling their customers and the rest of the world that this that the science was cloudy and it wasn't clear and all that. There's then big questions about liability and are who is responsible for this. And that's why we're seeing a massive uptick in lawsuits against oil and gas companies and others who have, you know, knowingly perpetuated the burning of fossil fuels while also understanding the damages that it would cause. Well, and I, I think uh, that's definitely one way to to potentially spark change, right, is, is you know, you have places that are that take climate change and what's happening very seriously, and they're trying to do what they can to make things better for the future. And then, you know, I think there are companies out there in the world who they don't care as much until it becomes a legal and financial issue. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, at the same time, these oil and gas companies have been, you know, showing record profits, right? I mean, billions and billions of dollars in, in profit. And so, you know, it's very clear that they are, you know, benefiting hugely, they and their shareholders, by perpetuating, you know, the burning of fossil fuels, while, you know, people around the world are suffering the consequences of that, uh, of that indulgence. And, it, you know, it, the, the real problem is, you know, this attribution science is, is, you know, the first step towards what some people have called the, um, you know, turning the fossil fuel industry into something like the tobacco industry. In other words, in other words, an industry that knowingly caused public harm and should be held in some way accountable for that. And, you know, there's a lot of legal complexity in this, but um, I think that there's an, an inevitability that this is the direction this is all going. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um there's so much in this book that I, I would love to dive into. But if I if I had to take it to kind of a, a wrap up point, 
one of the big things that I took away from reading this was thinking about humans' ability to adapt and what that looks like when we're talking about situations that are that are extreme, that do play a huge role in our existence. And it, it kind of reminded me, what's what's the old scientific experiment uh, of the, the frog in the water, right, where you just sort of right. <laughs> slowly warm the water up and so it doesn't realize that it's about to be boiled, you know, to death. That rolled through my brain and, and I... I thought, well, is is this what we're like as human beings, that the shift has seemed so small, and that was kind of the beginning of our conversation a little bit, um, that our our ability to adapt is is not on pace with what's actually going on. Uh, it, do you have any, like, you know, thoughts or, or things you could share when it comes to humans and adaptability, when it comes to recognizing heat for the threat that it is right now? Yeah, I mean, that's really a, a great question and a great way to end this. And, you know, um, it's obviously true that, you know, humans are very ingenious creatures and we have all kinds of ways of adapting to things like this. And in, in one way, heat is relatively easy to adapt to because, um, you know, you need shade, you need water, you need cool spaces. So within sort of a, a one context, um, you know, it's not hard to imagine um, redesigning cities, rethinking how we live, getting smarter about heat, um, and and dealing with it. Right, but th there there's a couple of problems. One is the problem of like what we're adapting to. Um, you know, it's not like we know. Oh, it's going to get you know two degrees hotter, and you know that the consequences of that will be this. Our climate is going to get hotter and hotter and hotter as long as we keep burning fossil fuels. It's a very straightforward thing. And these extreme events are going to get more and more extreme the longer we continue doing this. So the question is like, what are we really adapting to and how extreme is it? It's one thing to adapt to, you know, uh, instead of having, you know, here in Texas now we've had, uh, we're on our 46th day of above 100 degrees in Austin. And if you said to me, okay, can we adapt to 60, 60 days? Of course we can. But, you know, that's not necessarily what we're talking about. There was a study out last week looking at how hot could it get um, in places like Austin, just with the CO2 levels we have. And, you know, it suggests that we could have heat waves that are 15 degrees hotter than what we have now, which is, um, you know, catastrophic. That is like, you know, asphalt melting, you know, death on the street in an hour kind of heat. So when we get into those kinds of realms, adaptation becomes a whole other thing. And the second thing that I want to really stress is when you say, can we adapt, or when anyone says, can we adapt? The question is, who is we, right? So, you know, people who are live middle-class lives or, or beyond, who have access to air conditioning, who can travel, who can move, who can afford food if it gets twice as expensive? They're not going to still not going to not going to be happy, but they're not going to starve. Who, who if they get malaria, they can go to the doctor. I mean, you know, who have these resources, they can deal with this much better. But for you know, hundreds of millions of people in the United States and billions of people around the world do not have that kind of adaptive capacity. They are living marginal lives, don't have access to cooling, don't have access to doctors, don't 
have the luxury of being able to move easily to cooler places for whatever reasons, you know, in those kind of, um, those people have a very limited capacity for adaptation. So when we talk about these extreme weather events, heat being the key one, but also other ones, it's very predatory. It's the most vulnerable who are going to suffer hardest first. And so it brings up all these questions about about justice and equity that I think we're just beginning to really um, wrestle with. Yeah, definitely. Um, Jeff Cadell, uh, you are the author of The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. Uh, it's a fascinating and and interesting book to read. And I, uh, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for having me. It's a great conversation. Thanks for listening for KCBS and In-Depth. I'm Mary Hughes. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 